Welcome to the Aquas Podcast, conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Aquas Podcast. My name is Daniel Lawler, and I'm your host for this episode. If you're new to the Aquas Podcast, do hit the subscribe button on whatever your preferred provider of podcasts is. Our guest for this episode is Bob Quinn. Now, I had Bob on a previous episode. Bob is an independent financial advisor who we call the Investor Advocate, and he works on a day-to-day basis with retail investors, mostly in County Kildare, helping them on their investor journey. In the industry, we tend to be quite far removed from the end investors, even though it is those end investors that we're there to help and serve. So I thought it was very interesting to get Bob's insights in what it is that those investors ask him, what it is that's on their mind, and uh, to get that understanding of how we can best serve those retail investors, even though we don't actually see them face-to-face very much, if at all, in our day-to-day jobs and and during our career. So for this episode, I was really interested to chat to Bob about all things to do with fees and expenses and uh, to understand, because we know that value for money is high in the agenda of regulators and of providers of investment funds. So I wanted to understand, was it high in the agenda of the clients that he deals with or on his agenda as he helps those retail investors to deploy their assets? So we have a very interesting conversation about all things to do with value for money and fees and active versus passive uh, and how he goes about guiding investors through their investment journey. So very interesting stuff there. Before we do get on with the podcast, just to let you know that in the first week of November, we will be uh, helping to deliver Funds Ireland Minicon. So Funds Ireland Minicon is a virtual mini conference that uh, is going to deal with all things CP86 and fund management company related. We have a list of wonderful partners helping us to create the content and deliver Funds Ireland Minicon. It is free, free to register. So what could be better? Why don't you log on to fundsirelandminicon.com while you're listening to the podcast, register your interest, we get you on the guest list for the event. Uh, in the meantime, so we get on with the show. Catch you later on the Quest podcast. Hello, Bob Quinn, and welcome back to the Quest podcast. How are you doing, Bob? Uh, Daniel, I'm doing very well, and thanks for having me back. Well, it's great to have you back. So this is your second uh, Quest podcast. How did you find your first experience? It was, it was good to have such a robust conversation because oftentimes in doing what we do, um, we can at times have difficulty articulating how we connect with clients and how we manage expectations. So the conversation uh, on the first podcast uh, was very, very good to tease out a couple of issues that I suppose we'd like to get across to clients on a regular basis. And in fact, even it kind of turns the relationship on its head where things were framed in a certain way that helped me perhaps even better understand my client's motivation for coming to meet me. Are you an avid podcast listener, Bob? Uh, Not particularly. I always have sound down in the background. I I guess I I will be an Echo Dot sort of uh, Sonos speakers type of guy where um, live radio, not particularly, but uh, podcasts and recordings uh, um, certainly are always playing in the background. In fact, we have one TV in my house. And as far as I'm concerned, it's one TV too many. Oh, no. An argument I can't win. God knows I've tried over the last 12 or 14 years or whatever length of time it might be. So you're not one of those, Bob, are you? 
I'm afraid I am. I, I would say I watch some total of maybe 90 minutes of TV a week. And that usually is Peppa Pig or something along those lines just before the bedtime routine. So I am one of those people. And you know what? I embrace it for what it is. I would encourage everyone to come over to the dark side because uh, it's the place to be. Well, I'm not going to ask you anything about television and films then, but, but tell me what podcast you listen to. Podcast. Um, so I listen to, there's a few that I'd listen to in, re, in relation to uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He is, uh, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners would actually be familiar with him. He is uh, really good at, at articulating a way of doing things. I fundamentally, categorically, uh, totally object to the manner in which he encourages clients to invest their money. But I have to say, I like his style. Uh, the BBC World Series as well has a podcast, 50 Things, which is absolutely fascinating as well, which I dip in and out of uh, on occasions. So I suppose it's, um, it's a type of thing that I don't necessarily agree with. I don't like uh, groupthink. I'd like to take a contrarian view. So I want someone to, uh, to pursue an argument which is, which is uh, contrary to what my belief set is, just to see, have my thoughts changed? Do I need to evolve my argument? Because none of us stand still. And uh, I'm not really into listening to more of the same, if that makes sense. It does. I find myself listening a lot more to podcasts than I used to do. I think maybe mm. even simple things like the fact that for a long time during lockdown, the sporting world had shut down. So usually I would have listened to a sports program in the evening whilst yeah. or tidying up or whatever. And uh, I found myself not really getting that excited about deep sea diving or long distance endurance running or whatever, whatever they were trying to yeah. talk about. So I, I do find myself listening a lot more to podcasts. I'm going to give you one now, put this on your list. It's an oldie, but a goodie. I'll tell you what, it's an excellent podcast series is uh, the Desert Island Discs, the BBC version. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with this. It's your 70 years, is it? it? Yeah. I'm just so surprised at how much the guests open up and really, uh, you know, really, reveal themselves in and it's only a conversation over what top eight tracks would you take to a desert island it's very very good and such it a is, yeah yeah i've listened to a few of them before all right it's um quite so that might be something we'd have to do because um while i can't necessarily share much by way of uh, favorite films or tv shows i'm happy to go there with you in relation to music and what seven or eight songs you would take to a desert island uh, with you just remember you also need some audio system that'll play. So my Sonos speakers, for instance, rely on a good broadband connection. My internet goes down or, I've, uh, or the, the electricity goes. I can't play a single thing in my house. So modern technology is great when everything is working, but caveat enter. If your broadband goes down, you're totally screwed. You're sitting there in silence. Well, that's the, the downside of the, the tech world, I guess. So let's move on to the Equest podcast. So Bob, the the investor advocate. Tell us, how are the, uh, the housewives of County Kildare doing this week? Out <laughs> of uh, one of those uh, window cleaners confessions movies. Yeah, yeah, it's a Pat Mustard type of uh, uh, thing from Father Ted, maybe. But uh, no, everybody down here is doing fine. We're still obviously uh, dealing with the impact of, uh, of, of COVID. And, uh, but then again, cross-county borders, uh, you've now slipped into... Um, into the third uh, rung off the ladder where we were in Kildare Leash and Offaly a few weeks back. So uh, it's interesting times we live in and COVID is, is proving to be quite the distraction from everyday life. There's lots of tasks that should be 
uh, complete and done. And even meeting clients of mine and reviewing finances, uh, something that needs to be done on a, on a regular ongoing basis, I would suggest, but um, these things aren't necessarily being done because we're all focused on and distracted by COVID as the case might be. We're delighted to get kids back to school more recent weeks, but um, outside that, there's a lot of things that remain on the to-do list which don't seem to necessarily be coming off the to-do list. The only crumb of comfort I get from the whole COVID thing is when they, when they give the figures for the amount of young people who are uh, catching COVID and, and kind of put the blame on them, uh, it's anybody under 45. So I'm just delighted to be uh, still in the, in the young gang. Uh, <laughs> that is not much good news. But, but for this, um, you talked about how you engage with your clients. And what I'm interested in chatting through in this episode is the extent to which those conversations include or revolve around things like fees and expenses and value for money. It's certainly mm. a theme that we're seeing at, at uh, regulator level. It's something that the regulator here is interested in, getting a lot of attention in the UK and yeah. out of uh, Europe as well through ESMA. So it's on a regulatory agenda. Um, and I'm just wondering in the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle of actually dealing with the retail investors, to what extent is it something that they care about? And if it is, how do those conversations go? Uh, and does it have an impact on behaviors and on the types of products or investment choices that they make? So yeah. <clears throat> where does fees and expenses rank when it comes to talking to your clients about their investment journey? Honestly, not very high. Um, Pete, Pete Lonoff, the ESRI, uh, did a... Uh, a research report back as far as 2009. And most homeowners back then had no idea what rate of interest applied to their mortgage. And a third of those people had absolutely no idea. And even further on from that again, half of those that were carrying credit card debts had no idea what interest rate they were paying. And many of those who claimed they knew were absolutely wrong. So there seems to be a disconnect uh, with a large, uh, a, a large uh, uh, customer base, if you like, of Irish financial services products and firms. And I'm not entirely sure uh, where responsibility lies for that, but one thing we are sure of is an awful lot of people that should know about their financial affairs, their credit card debts, their mortgage interest rates, uh, perhaps how they're invested, where they're invested, what they're paying for their for, for that opportunity, most people don't know. And is it a case that they don't care or, or is it a, a case that they don't necessarily understand? I'm not really sure about that, but one way or the other, from the get-go, I'd say that an awful lot of clients aren't all that concerned, which is a huge shame from my perspective. Okay, well, that was not the answer I was expecting. I thought it would be very high up on the list. Um, so then if it isn't, but I guess, you know, as a, as a professional in the industry, Bob, you, you're, you're tracking these kind of conversations, you're aware of research around the impact on performance uh, by uh, fees and expenses over a period of time. Mm. Do, how do you, something you want it as part of the conversation? Is it something that you're kind of left to manage outside of the investor input or is it something you bring up with them or how does that bit work? Yeah, you see, Danny, the thing about it is I wish every client that came into my office was focused on fees and charges and asked the questions, Bob, what are you charging? What are you getting paid? How do you get paid? 
who else is getting paid if I invest 100,000 or a million euro or whatever the sum might be? Because the proposition I work from here is on a fee-only basis. On a fee-only basis means we can strip away layers and layers of additional fees and charges that clients have, have historically and currently are, are, are subject to. So my proposition, as far as I'm concerned, when clients are engaged, is a much better proposition than what they get with an awful lot of the firms that they may deal with or possibly have dealt with. So when it comes along to making any deductions for my clients' funds, over the last six months, uh, we, Maria, who works along with me, who looks after the administration, has been sending clients documents with euro monetary amounts as to what's been deducted from their funds for the fees and charges and service that we agreed to when they engaged me at the start. Because I think it's hugely important that people see it in a euro represented sense. Therefore, from a transparency perspective, from an enhanced trust perspective that over time, a relationship that starts off with someone saying, Bob, look, I've come to you because someone referred me to you. I have a pot of money that I want to invest. I believe you're one of these guys that does that type of stuff. So here, take me on a journey. But trust isn't granted from day one. Trust is earned over a period of time. And from my perspective, the more transparent we can be and the more information we can share with our clients, it helps reinforce that spirit of trust in a relationship between client and advisor. So like when, when I have a client who's largely apathetic to fees and charges, it is in one way, shape or form, a little disappointing, quite frankly, because the more they wanted to get involved in this side of the, the uh, investment business, the, the, the more questions they ask, the better understanding they have of how investment markets operate and who gets paid based on their investment. But ultimately, if we can take them on a journey and make them more knowledgeable and more engaged with their financial affairs, nobody loses. That's the bottom line. And so when you, when you are providing this transparency, this reporting to your clients, mm. identifying in a euro amount, this is the extent of the fee that goes to Bob. Do you also report on, obviously that, that cash has been invested somewhere, the yeah. costs of that investment. So if it's in a fund, you're talking about management fees and total expense ratios. If it's property, yeah. there's probably, probably management fees. Does yeah. it part of how you report or is that, do you kind of forward or, or, or how do you know? Yeah, so that it's not just Bob, it's, and all these other fingers in the pie as well. Yeah, so, so the, the majority of um, uh, the correspondence we have will be the fees that we charge because most of the clients uh, we have uh, can view their accounts on a particular um, trading platform. And that trading platform gives, again, an entire breakdown of the fees and charges that come out of the client's fund. So from that perspective, I suppose, I don't necessarily uh, ask my clients uh, on a regular basis, look, uh, uh, Danny, have you actually logged on to the platform and have you seen fees and charges? That doesn't come up, but the facility is built from day one. And when the client's money goes in, they can see exactly what's been taken by the platform, by the pensioner trustee, perhaps by whoever. And uh, at least it brings, it gives clients that facility, but we write to clients every 12 months. 
to deduct fees from their fund to provide whatever service we had agreed to. And, uh, and that's where we, we advise them as to what we charge. And when it comes along to the annual review as well and the pension review or the investment review or whatever it might be, there is a report we go through and it's all outlined there to them as well. But right. once, once the client comes on board, once the client goes through that engagement process, the client knows what the fees and charges are going to, going to be. It's only if something changes in the background do we have to have a conversation about additional fees and charges or a change to how the clients are being charged to invest that sum of money. So when you then, obviously if it's, if it's somewhere on the investor, the end investor's list, but, but possibly not that close to the top, but when you're looking at then the investment options for your client and, and how you're going to either construct the portfolio for them or advise them to construct the portfolio. Yeah. And you're looking across your range of options and your classes. To what extent then are you looking at the value for money and the fees? So you're looking at active funds versus passive funds. Maybe you're looking at direct investing versus investing through a structure. Mm. So is that a big part? Like, is that for you then, is that something that, that you pay a lot of attention to? It is, yeah. Well, we, we would review the investment proposition on an ongoing basis and whatever that investment proposition is, uh, at this point in time and for the last few years, we've had, I suppose, we've been looking at, uh, let's call it an alternative approach. It's not necessarily uh, passive investing or active investing. It's um, uh, evidence-based investing is what we would call it. It's prob probably somewhere between the two. And when it comes along to fees and charges, I suppose the starting position is, does the portfolio do what it needs to do? Global diversification, as I would have stated on the, the previous podcast, is a, a number one a priority. And uh, from there then, what kind of value, reasonable value? So cheap doesn't mean better necessarily, but more expensive certainly. And from an active perspective where there are trading costs, that we can't control. Trading costs is something we want to step away from. So this active, actively managed portfolio is something that we do not want to do because it's essentially, it's essentially a blank check to a fund manager. And it's something that I'm not willing to stand by. So, so from, from that perspective, we're more looking at principles to the underlying investment portfolio or investment fund. And are those principles evident with the investment proposition we're putting to clients. And so do you find it hard to resist then, for example, an index tracking fund with an expense ratio of 0.2%, 20 basis points or 50 basis points, something pretty low compared to an active fund that might be one and a half percent for the manager plus, plus other expenses? Well, you see, an active fund is something I wouldn't do. Because let, let's frame the impact of fees and charges on return. If you have an equity fund with a realistic proposition of earning, let, let's agree six, seven, maybe 8% annualized returns long-term, that if you have an active fund manager charging 1.5% uh, for the privilege of getting involved in that particular fund, if you work out the 1.5% charge, as a percentage of potential overall returns, it is, it's a huge, huge fee to pay. So we look at fees, uh, I look at fees from the perspective of going, okay, if we can realistically expect long-term annualized returns of A, B, or C, what is the charge 
of running that fund to gain that return. And also a 20% loss in the value of a fund will require a 25% gain just to get back to the starting position. You know, you invest 100 grand, your fund is down to 80 grand uh, uh, next week, you need to grow it back by 25% to get back to 100,000. So the impact of, you know, the, the drag on a fund for what would be deemed to be excessive fees and charges and trading costs built in, um, it, it's something that I, I, quite frankly, I don't have any appetite to invest my client's money via an active fund manager because it doesn't represent reasonable or good value any day of the week. And that's notwithstanding, of course, the expertise and the claims that the asset managers will make on their ability to outperform the market. But that's all it is. Long term, we know that uh, four in every five active fund managers fail to beat the benchmark. So therefore, why would you actually put your money with an active manager when if, it's, if you're investing long term, the stats will all state time and time again that four in every fund managers cannot beat the markets, given uh, the fact that they have uh, a high level of fees built in to their so-called expertise. And so then if you're working with a client and they have their amount of cash to invest and you've decided that a chunk of that should go into equities and you want a global exposure, yeah. looking towards, presumably you're looking towards a fund rather than direct investing. Is that right? Are you looking towards probably an index tracking fund, a global index tracking fund? Yeah, we, we could be like, we, we could be looking at the likes of Vanguard, uh, Dimensional, MNG, uh, you know, Dimensional typically would take a lot of the boxes uh, from my perspective, Dimensional Fund Advisors and uh, Vanguard, given what they do and how they structure things and from a charging perspective, uh, certainly the charges are, are, are very reasonable on Vanguard funds. And again, if you're looking at global diversification, you know, it, it ticks a lot of the boxes rather than an active fund manager that has 60 securities in their actual fund, um, which isn't necessarily sufficiently diversified from my perspective. And then they're potentially charging one, one and a half percent off a fee to manage this fund on an ongoing basis. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a compelling investment proposition. It, it hasn't been. The only reason why, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it still has a place is there are typically alpha males out there who like the idea of being aligned with an active fund manager, making the calls, uh, going out there, sort of uh, uh, gazing into uh, a crystal ball and saying that they know more than the well-oiled machine, which is the actual market itself. Let's assume the market is a well-oiled machine. An active fund manager doesn't, more, doesn't know more than that doesn't know more than what the market knows at any one given point in time. And so your approach then in terms of building the, the portfolios with your clients, hmm. looking really towards the, the index funds, the, the passive funds more than the active, is that typical of your peers as much as you can tell? Uh, no, it, it wouldn't seem to be. There are, there are a few um, financial planning firms out there that are, that have embraced, I suppose, a, a passive approach to investing or an evidence-based approach to investing that very much put the client's center stage in everything they do. And, you know, what can we, what can we control? That, that's the kind of starting position for me and a few other advisors that I would, uh, that I would liaise with. 
And there's a few things that we can control, and that is maybe the level of volatility. But also the fees and charges that a client pays is one of those things that is within our control. So to remove that drag from fund performance in so far as we can, every basis point that is removed from the, the charges levied on the client's money, then long term, it's going to have a considerable impact. So, you know, we've devised a way where we get paid uh, based on either an assets under management perspective or, or it's a it's going to be a fee uh, agreed with the client in advance. So we can make professional fees and doing it this way. Whereas an awful, lot of, uh, an awful lot of the different types of financial services firms that deal with the retail investor, uh, it's about commissions and initial, initial commissions and taking the money up front and then maybe not providing the level of service to the client when markets get jittery and clients tend to panic. Like the biggest impact a, a, a client will make on their investments is this idea that they panic when the market tanks march 25th 2020 the markets uh, dropped by whatever it was it was a bloodbath in around that time but if you're a client who hadn't been there before and your advisor wasn't advising you what to do at that point in time the natural response is oh god what's happened to my money Quick, pull it out of that fund, get it out of there. Yeah. You know, markets have come rebounding back since then. But I did hear a report on the radio where a firm had identified their top 10 investors, uh, the top 10 investors that the firm had on their books. And yeah. do you know they all had one thing in common? What was that? They were all dead. <laughs> all right. They were pursuing a buy and hold strategy. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. It makes perfect sense. Like, if yeah. Warren Buffett can say, hey, put all your money into the S&P 500s or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, and he is absolutely uh, fully focused on that style of investing, then the retail investor, the, the, the person who comes into me saying, Bob, look, I've 300 grand in a pension or a million euro on a pension or whatever it might be, and I want this money to be invested long term to ensure that I have a certain standard of living in my later years, that if that's the outcome, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're not trying to second guess where returns are coming from. We know how capitalism works. We know where returns come from. And it's a case of getting exposure to these particular uh, drivers of returns and leaving it there. So consider this, jumping in and out of investment markets because Donald Trump tweets or Joe Biden gets elected or Boris Johnson sort of has an argument with the European Union. They impact on the markets for 24 hours or or a week. But if you're investing your, your pension for the next 30 years, we should absolutely be tone deaf to what's happening on a short term basis. And this stuff happens all the time. So if we listen to any disturbance in the market, we have to listen to them all. And Bob, do you find investors are attracted to products or, or, or strategies that have capital guarantees in place? So some sort of a, an arrangement to ensure they don't lose? Um, yeah, they are. The easiest thing for an advisor to sell is a structured product that comes with a 100% capital guarantee. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a bit of a cop-out. 
there might be a degree of education required or educating the client in where returns come from. But if you're there kind of going, well, I could sell this structured product to a client who is particularly conservative and it's a five-year investment term and I can get paid 4% initial commission or whatever on that particular product. Well, for every 100,000 that's invested, I pick up a fee of 4,000 euro. The client goes off happy. There's nothing that I need to do with that client for the next five years. Mm, you know what? That's a pretty compelling proposition from the advisor's perspective. Yeah. Well, in five years' time, because of the nature of these particular products, they have a strike date and they have a closing date. So if that particular index or option as is built into the, the particular product, if that goes against you in the last six months of the investment term, you're coming back with your money and just your initial investment and nothing else. So from, and that's then also assuming that where your money is held in the interim has still remained afloat and hasn't gone bust in the meantime. So these type of structured products with capital guarantees sound decent from the get-go, but you have the impact of inflation, that if you come out with just your initial capital, the impact of inflation has eroded the value of your money over the five years. And there's also then a lot of risks, additional risks, such as institutional risk and interest rate risk and whatever else. So if you were to really look at us, the advisor gets paid his or her fee upfront. No obligation for you for the remainder of the term. The, the people who are structuring this product get paid upfront with no obligation to the client ever again. And um, so if the client is looking for a relationship, an advisory relationship, then these type of products very much fall foul of long-term advisory relationships. So, Advisors and planners that have ongoing relationships with their clients, from my perspective, do not sell or advise these type of products to their clients. But if you're looking to simply sell products and move on to the next client, structure products uh, certainly have a place in that type of um, a business environment. But quite frankly, it hasn't floated my balls in the last 10 years and I can't see it happening anytime soon. I did see, I did have a very exciting opportunity with one of these structured products about three years ago and oh, nice. read through the materials on the product. It was a guaranteed investment, five years. Mm. Um, the investment was split partly into a bond with a guaranteed return and the other part was yeah. tracking an index that was some sort of composite that had yeah. been created for the purpose or didn't have a track record. Yeah. You started to crunch some numbers. You figured out that the amount of return that you made on the bond covered the costs of the product. So the commission, yep. the various fees that were coming out. So really all you were left with was half of your money being exposed to this index for five years. Yep. If that index declined early days, then the position was shut out to ensure you didn't incur any loss and to cover off because it was capital guaranteed. So basically to cover off the capital guarantee. So in theory, you could enter this thing and after two days, the, uh, you're not making any return. It's just going to sit there for five years whilst the provider uh, gets their fee and everybody else gets their fee. So it struck me as being an arrangement that was put together for the benefit of the provider rather than 
the person whose capital was it. But you see, unfortunately, Danny, this is actually still to this day in 2020, how the financial services industry is largely uh, um, run. Because the only person taking the risk here is the person investing their money. I get paid, you get paid. Uh, the, the, every financial services uh, uh, firm that has something to do with that underlying investment gets paid irrespective of the outcome of the investment. But the client takes all the risk. So that client who invests a hundred grand, I make money off it. Everybody else makes money off it. If that hundred grand is worth 50 grand in five years time, well, we've all taken our fees and charges in the interim. We don't lose. The only one going to lose is the client. And so that is an absolutely bonkers position for the client to take or willingly enter into as far as I'm concerned. Because once I get all the disclaimers signed and all the documentation sorted out, irrespective of what happens in the future, I will get paid my fees and the client then may end up with a much smaller fund than what they brought to me. And, you know, consider that for a moment and whatever about the impact of fees and charges, but how we arrange a client's finances. Um, and go back to what I said at the start, most homeowners in 2009, no idea what interest rate applied to the mortgage. So the level of engagement here, very much there's a rallying call with the first meeting with my clients going, look, I need you to be engaged. I need you to ask me lots of questions. You may not know the questions that you need to ask. So I'm going to coach you through a couple of things in relation to how we're going to structure these investments, where your money's going to rest at night, who has access to us, how it's been traded, how it's been moved around, where returns are going to come from, and how it is ultimately going to impact on your life when you're old and gray, if that's what you're targeting at that point in time. And when we open up, there's a couple of exercises we do with clients that, that kind of get them more involved in understanding the world of investing. And the world of investing in my business is a pretty simple and straightforward thing. It's global diversification, particular types of uh, portfolios, investment funds, and it's nothing else. So any other aspect to the investment market, my clients can totally disregard because it has no impact on them, their families, or their long-term financial security. So uh, before we wrap up, Bob, um, talk to me a little bit about um, Value for money. So I, I know in the UK, they have introduced a regime whereby the asset managers, the providers of products are required to do an assessment on the value for money that they provide for their clients at the end of the year and uh, disclose that assessment then to the world. Uh, any views on that as an approach? Any value in it? Um, well, look, anything regulators do to try and bring a greater sense of transparency to the world of investing has to be welcomed. Uh, and part of it is like the, what the changes that the, the FCA is, is making in the uh, UK, they've actually done a lot to try and put the consumer or the investor, if you like, center stage, uh, uh, you know, right down to stripping out commissions on certain types of um, investment products and, and retirement products over the last few years. Yeah. So I'm, like just, I'm, just look at their work on the RDR, the retail distribution review a few years ago. Certainly, certainly well advanced of where most of the countries are. Absolutely. And when RDR came in, in actual fact, uh, over here, uh, Irish advisors and uh, the financial service industry here, a lot of them saying, oh, I should look, that, that could never work here. No, they've gone about it all wrong. 
But the bottom line is, uh, British investors would tend to have a much better idea as to what they're paying to invest. Irish investors still don't necessarily know because even, you know, the, the kid documents that are issued with net investments, there's no obligation on them to actually uh, go out with pension investments, for instance. So there's a disconnect there. A lot of the business I do is related to pension investments. So every time we can demonstrate to a client, you're paying X, Y, or Z to invest your money. It will prompt certain questions. It will actually add to a reframing of conversations. And I'm absolutely fully in favor of regulators doing what they can, whether they're nudge techniques or, or they're more compelling, you know, um, uh, sticks to beat advisors with. Everything that can be done to, to bring the client into the sphere of how their money is being invested and what they're paying to invest is a welcome opportunity. I don't think we're doing near uh, as much as we could do. And, and I do hope that ESMA, who you mentioned earlier on, for instance, ESMA has a few interesting reports on the bubble right now, but ultimately, until they start to come down to me, who engages with the investor, who's putting their life savings away to provide them with a certain type of lifestyle in the future, until it drips down as far as me, not a whole lot's gonna change. Well, I want you to hold that thought because in a future episode, we are going to chat about the approach to transparency and the approach of regulators and whether whether regulators have it right or, or whether the approach should be slightly different. So I said, hold that thought. I yep. don't, want to, uh, don't want to spoil the future content. Sure. Um, but I, I guess from my perspective, when it comes to the value for money disclosures, I, I wonder, and, I, and I'm going to say I haven't seen enough of them to know across the board if there's great value on them. But I, as, a, as a starting position, I wonder at its basic where you're asking firms to grade themselves what's the value in that? And aren't they all going to say that they're great, in which case there's no value in it. But I think actually the value in it is not so much what the outcome is this year, but it's the fact that it is now very much on the agenda front and center and firms have to demonstrate, um, demonstrate and improve on how they do value for money and how they provide value for money. And I think that the value then isn't, or the benefit of it from an investor perspective and a regulatory perspective isn't necessarily Today, it's probably in two or three or four years' time and, and today and taking active steps to get better. Well, even on that, though, I, I think what the FCA is trying to get to is by asking firms to, to rate themselves up, ultimately, once this data is made publicly available, which it obviously will be, uh, then it'll be interesting to see how the regulator goes about actually doing comparison leagues and tables. Because all things being equal, if uh, fund A versus fund B versus fund C, if they're largely in around globally, you know, uh, global equity funds, for instance, and one fund is charging a lot more than the other, uh, when it sits underneath the umbrella of whatever, whatever firm it might be, that you would hope that we'll have greater transparency when it comes along to pricing across the board. Because the challenge for my clients have is if, if they're meeting an invest, investment advisor. We don't have 10 investment advisors over the course of our life. So if a client doesn't necessarily know what they should be paying or what's fair or reasonable value, wow. it's very difficult for the client to actually compare that. So the client isn't necessarily looking to try and do an entire comparison against financial planning firms and the type of portfolios they offer or whatever. But this data that may become available to the likes of me will give me a greater sense for if the company I'm dealing with on behalf of my clients 
represents fair value or reasonable value. And if it doesn't, then hopefully I reserve the right to actually make a change to the different firms that we engage on behalf of our clients. Absolutely. Well, there's nothing like understanding the peer group and whether you're an outlier at one end or the other to drive, hopefully, and presumably drive investor behaviors towards better performing firms. And next thing you know, market discipline has fixed your problem. Things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, listen, thank you very much for your time, Bob. We're going to wrap it up there. If I was to summarize, I would say whilst fees and expenses may not be very high on the list of the Irish, average Irish investor coming in to, to, to meet and engage with a financial services uh, advisor, independent financial advisor, they are certainly on your mind. And so you're guiding them towards all the very sexy and exciting stuff like buy and hold strategies, low fee strategies. Uh, passive funds, and also looking for a global diversification. So all the very boring stuff, Bob. You're, where's, the, where's the gold mines in Australia? You still like <laughs> well, hey, look, I do, I do think there's an opportunity. Some clients really get a buzz from investing money, and whether it's setting up an account with DeGiro or whoever it might be, that I, I'm not opposed to a client taking a percentage off their money, and I think you discussed this the last time, and put it into gold mines in Australia or wherever the hell it might be, because um, if people do have that gene, gene where they need to be entertained by their money and their finances and whatever else, then look, take a small bit and go crazy. But um, when it comes along to your income and retirement, we're not taking any chances. We just want to batten down the hatches, do that kind of boring conventional uh, stuff, the stuff that we know will give you a reasonable opportunity for, for a reliable outcome in the future. But um, that's it. We, we do not apologize for being boring. <laughs> nice and boring, exactly as your financial advisor should be. Let's wrap up there, Bob. Thank you very much for your time. I really look forward to our next chat, uh, which I think is going to be on ESG investing. And until then, catch you next time on the Equest Podcast. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.